0: Welcome to the Sense-Making in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, Permaculture Educator and Global Ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking, The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever. And even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on. So our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas, and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together, we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the Global South, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is, and and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations, and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubbi people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's my great pleasure to welcome Joe Brewer to the show. I talked with him just the other day from his home in Costa Rica. Joe describes himself as a culture designer in service of humanity and the planet. Joe and I have known each other for some time now, But this is actually the first time that we met. We both live permaculture lives and work in regenerative work globally. And I just love the chance to explore so many ideas with him about how to live regeneratively, how change happens, and what are the seeds of regenerative culture. He's recently published a book, The Design Pathways for Regenerative Earth, and he's, he's actually one of the most interesting thinkers of my generation, and I was delighted to be able to spend this time talking with him. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sense Making in the Changing World show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here talking with Joe Brewer today. Joe and I have been in kind of Similar circles for a long time, but this is actually the first time that we've chatted. And I'm really looking forward to diving into a whole lot of different concepts and ideas with you. Um, I I love your work. I love how you share the ideas of your book. And um and I wanted to start with asking you about something I read in a Medium article that you wrote, Joe, which was at the same time that the climate strikes were happening, and you said um something along the lines I'm paraphrasing here that stop going to school drop out or drop into regeneration learn permaculture and and other things like you know bioregionalism and do something radical now the reason I'm picking up on this particular thread is because that's exactly what my 11 and 13 year olds did they just didn't see the point of school after that whole thread and they dropped out so Just to kind of add another little segment into that before I hand over to you, um, was another thing that you have written about in your book or it's sort of one of the threads of questioning that you explore, which is are humans bad for the planet? And so this is the other kind of side of why my 11-year-old son kind of quit because he's going, well, really what's humans are just what are the point of humans on this planet? We're just destroying it. We're messing everything up. You know, what is the point? What are we learning all that stuff for? And and what are we supposed to do? And so I just wanted, like, both sides of that, if there's some way you could put that in the perspective from where you were coming from when you said that, that would be a fantastic place
1: to start. Oh, well, I want to talk to your children. (laughs) So (laughs) let me answer it as though I'm speaking to them because um, uh, I have a four-year-old daughter and so much of what we do as a family is built around how we think we should not be preparing our children. It's not necessarily knowing what we should do, we're trying to figure that out, but what we should not do. And one thing we should not do is pretend this extremely bizarre, unprecedented and four and a half billion years history of the earth this moment is what we should treat as normal that's just so far from any empirical trend you care to look at that goes far enough back in time and so this idea that people should basically do job training which is what you now since the, roughly the 1990s there's been a the economic ideology of neoliberalism has taken over so much of universities That it's really, I mean, I graduated high school in 1995. And even then, I was so odd for going to college because I wanted to learn when almost everyone was going to get a better paying job. And that was 25 years ago. So this idea that we should go to school as if that's the place to learn is very historically bizarre. and. I'm someone, I spent nine years in the university. I'm a total academic nerd. I loved it. I flourished in it. So I get it. I really get it. But at the same time, when I look back at where I learned best, it was when I bent, broke, or ignored the rules of the university. Like I invented my own undergraduate degree in interdisciplinary studies. I convinced the dean of the college to let me have Extra independent study credits. I convinced professors to join a committee to let me study what I wanted that wasn't offered. You know, like I was breaking the rules. So I wouldn't say go to a place where the rules are broken, meaning the rules they're using don't work. And that's where you're going to learn because that's not what I did. Um, I just took advantage of having an academic scholarship to read books in the libraries and sit in classes with really knowledgeable people and things like that. Um, and in this time where really the future looks absolutely abysmal in so many ways to continue on a path that stays within the worldview that creates that terrible future, is just the wrong thing to do. It's like not, not a good idea at all. And, um, when I started looking back into other areas of my own life and into sort of like the anthropology and archaeology of human history, the things I resonated most with were authentic human experiences, like my wife and I do bike touring. And when we're out in the weather, in the landscapes, experiencing something on roughly a human scale, I mean, the book goes a little faster, but definitely not in human scale, like a car, I find that there's so much to learn that uh, we only learn by paying attention to the world. And I had to go to college sort of to get away from my, my dysfunctional cultural history, which gets a little bit at your second question, to start finding the part of human culture that I really just deeply love. And one of the things that, I think has made this so powerful for me is that I studied cognitive linguistics and I worked with this you know, famous cognitive scientist, George Lakoff. And um, if you wanted to summarize his work in like one sentence, it would basically be the kinds of minds we have depend on the kinds of bodies we have, the kinds of environments we find each other ourselves in, including the social environments. And so we create our realities through those interactions and we can choose which stories to live, including absolutely delusional stories that have no basis in reality. And we can live in nightmares and we can live in false, naive, hopeful dreams. But um, when I started realizing what permaculture was um, and that I'd already been practicing it, the idea that you just observe and be present and then learn how to care for and love the context that you're in, and then become responsible for it. Like, that's the basic ethic of permaculture and then all the beautiful things you do with it. It's like, oh, well, mostly I'm not doing that in the classroom. I was doing that when I was taking what I learned in the classroom and took it into the world. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and mm-hmm. maybe that's just like, I'll stop there for a moment. To like yeah,
0: look, to- I... Thank you, because going. I really love what you were saying <clears throat> there about, you know, we choose the stories we love. And I also, I think, like the way that you described permaculture there too. And, and I guess perhaps this is, you know, I wanted to ask you too, what brought you to, you're now in Colombia, is that right? Yes. So,
2: that, yes.
0: so, and so what brought you to Colombia and, and where, where are you and, and what was a bit of your pathway of getting there? Just, to kind of give us a sense of your, I, the, I guess where I'm trying to think with this is that you were you were in the academic world and you were studying at, atmospheric science and then you moved into, you said, cognitive linguistics and now you're living in Colombia. What was a little bit of the arc of that and how you landed there and and, and the reason why you're there?
1: I'll give a couple of moments in time. One of them was 2003. In 2003, I was in a graduate program in atmospheric science at the University of Illinois in Champaign, which is an amazing university with very powerful supercomputers and lots of great professors and stuff. And I would look out the window of my office and see all of the students going about their lives like everything was normal, except that the United States states had invaded iraq false pretenses and our country was quote unquote at war so i would look outside and see no evidence whatsoever people going about their normal lives and I immediately connected this with climate change which is that we have a world of perception of the economy is normal and it's working just fine in our tiny little cultural bubbles and we do not have the perception to experience the world as it really is, mm-hmm. including that our wealth and privilege comes from the rape and pillage of the planet and creation of poverty and a lot of things I was just starting to learn about then. So this recognition that the world was in a bad place, in part because humans could perceive a false reality and that this was the making of our minds and our ways our bodies experience the world. So that was a key moment. And when I shifted from um, atmospheric science to cognitive science, it was because what I was actually studying was complexity. I went into atmospheric science because it was a place to study how patterns form and how do patterns form in very complex situations. I was studying clouds. And clouds are very complex things. A lot of little interactions that create these emergent patterns. And I was applying what I was learning to to human behavior and to society. And uh, that took me down this road of how does the human mind create this ability to not see climate change? How could those students on the campus not see we were at war? And that's how I ended up eventually working with George Lakoff and doing cognitive linguistics and applying it to politics and to social movements. And years later, uh, realizing that what I was actually doing was studying cultural evolution, how do living systems evolve, and then what is so distinctive and interesting about human culture and how human culture changes. And this gets me closer to how we ended up in Colombia because I spent more than 10 years teaching people about the science of the human mind and the scientific knowledge that informs how social change occurs. But I had this planetary science background, so I was always thinking about the Earth and very aware of the Earth as a presence in all of it. And one of the things that I came to discover was that there is a long history of human cultures that are not the way this human culture is that I grew up in. And there's even an acronym for it from a 2010 psychology paper, WEIRD, which was the discovery that almost all psychological research is biased because they study people from weird cultures, Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic. Translation, college students at Western universities. (laughs) that There are no sustainable cultures in history that meet those criteria. They don't exist. Mm. All sustainable cultures have been indigenous. And as I came to realize there was this huge diversity of human cultures, that I always felt a, a strange connection with. Like, I felt like I wanted to be part of them. I used to be part of them. I'd forgotten how, and I didn't know how to get back. Mm-hmm. Which turns out in the human evolution story is historically correct. All of us are you know, descendants of hunter-gatherer peoples who either were conquered or were the conquerors. But to be the conquerors, we were probably conquered. Mm-hmm. And so um, our path to Columbia Involved a lot of steps in between, but when our daughter was born in January of 2017, we just couldn't take halfway changes anymore. You know, we'd gotten rid of our car years ago, only got around by bike, did work that was related to environmental issues, but I was still working with social movements, trying to address global poverty, and my wife was working for a university on waste diversion and recycling and urban sustainability, realizing that all faith-based because there's zero evidence of sustainable cities in human history. Mm -hmm. And so it's just based on faith that they can be made sustainable. And when we looked at our daughter, knowing full full well, like we chose to have a child, we debated it for years, we're talking about possible human population crash and all kinds of things, should we do this? So what we say is we had a baby with eyes wide open. Um, And that made us very responsible to have every moment of our decisions after she was born be something we could look her in the eye years from now, even if terrible things are unfolding, and say, look, we knew and we still did this. And one piece of that was we chose to believe in the future of humanity. And to use a, a, a quote from Nasim Taleb, who is kind of a narcissist and a bit of a jerk, but he's also a really smart guy. Um, he, he observed that people who make investments in the stock market do a lot better if they use their own money than if they invest someone else's money. So has this phrase that people need to have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Well, we literally have skin in the game, the skin encased around the body of our child.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the skin in the game is we invested in the future of humanity. Because our daughter is going to be 33 years old in 2050, Mm -hmm. if she lives that long. You know, that's where she'll be. So we put ourselves into the necessity of living into a human culture that has a future for our child. So we made plans step by step to leave Seattle, where we were living at the time, to Eugene, Oregon, that was less expensive and more family-oriented, to Costa Rica living off-grid at a like eco hotel, permaculture project, regenerative agriculture project, and found it wasn't really the right place to raise a child and was just complicated in a lot of ways, but traveled a lot in Costa Rica at the time. And that was when I really started diving into regenerative economics at the large scale. I had a previous history that enabled me to do that fairly quickly. I wasn't starting from scratch. And I worked with John Fullerton in the Capital Institute and Stuart Cowan, for those who know him, a wonderful um, regenerative finance expert and biomimicry expert for economies. And we started exploring how to create regenerative bioregional scale economies. And just a little side note, I was born in the Ozarks in Missouri. And the first international bioregional congress in human history was a year after I was born, 10 miles from where I was born, just outside of Springfield, Missouri. It was the Ozarks, which has a very strong bioregional craft culture, art- artisans of many kinds. And I wanted to get away from that place my entire childhood. So to have the irony that I grew up in the hotbed of bioregionalism, having no idea what it was <laughs> until decades later, is the, the humor is not lost.
0: <laughs> so. <laughs> So there's a lot of things that I wanted to pick up on in what you just said then. But maybe we'll start with the with that last comment around bioregional economics. So can you kind of describe what a what a functioning bioregional economy looks like? And perhaps how how we can start to really move towards that at a pace that we need to be moving towards that.
1: And the, the first thing to know is that bioregion is a term that doesn't just apply to humans. I like to use the example of starfish. The starfish live in an intertidal zone and their bioregion or the biological region is the geography of place that supports their entire life system, which for them is the intertidal zone and the tide pools. But if you looked at the Roosevelt elk of the Pacific Northwest in North America, you would say that the bioregion of these you know, coastal forests and mountains or into the mountain ranges of the continental interior. And you would look at their entire life system and say, well, what do they need to survive? And you'd be able to say, well, what is their niche? What is their population's needs? What is the individual's needs? And so on, you'd be able to map that out. And most people would just say, this is ecology. So what's interesting when we apply this concept to humans is that a human bioregion includes the structure of culture so we can do things like engage in regional trade. So this changes what a bioregion is for humans. And it also starts to show us what a regenerative bioregional economy is. And that is a subsistence economy, an economy that enables people to just survive and live. Obviously, you can do better than that, but at a minimum, they need to have subsistence in a place in a way that is sustainable for the long term. And so if you look at historical human patterns of hunter-gatherers that move with the seasons, and maybe they follow the migration of animals that they hunt, then that entire geography and everything about their culture that enables them to live that way is their bioregion. And what's interesting is most bioregions are defined around watersheds, Islands, coastal zones or estuaries, a specific mountain range, a specific floodplain, which may be a little different than the watershed, depending on the trade network. Like where we are in Colombia, there are three major rivers and three mountain ranges that together have this plateau in the center, and the entire area is about 500,000 hectares. And there is an indigenous culture called Guane that lived here for well, as the Guane people, maybe only a few hundred years, but ancestrally, there have been humans here for more than 13,000 years. And the geography of the mountains and the water, the, the canyons and the rivers, creates an extended trade network that is limited by the geography of the structures. So you think the way, you can start to design the conditions of an economy. You can ask yourself, what is the ecological history of this place? And how did humans live here? What was their ancestral range? If they had a trade network or a federation of tribes interacted, what did that look like? How much did they have relative autonomy? Like maybe 90% of their economy was local, and they traded just for inter information and information you know, and shiny things like seashells where they didn't live close enough to the ocean. And what you start to see is a fairly clear cultural boundary that is also biologically, geologically, and e- ecologically constrained. So this is the natural organizing pattern of human economies, of actually all economies of all biological organisms. Mm-hmm. But particularly for humans, we need to understand this. Mm. I think it's interesting to look too at the, the, the
0: map of Australia or what is called Australia. When you look at the, the indigenous nations, the, the regions, the and then you overlay that with bi-regions and it's pretty much this perfect fit and there's hundreds across Australia. And so that idea of, of using that as a as a map for regenerating human culture in this country is what we're working on now, I'm actually um, going pretty much straight from our conversation to a meeting that's an Indigenous-led um, conversation of people around Australia looking at a regenerative way forward and it's it's, such a different way of perceiving where we are and where we've got to go, which kind of leads me to another question that I had for you too, which is based around this idea of of being Indigenous. You said um, that we are all Indigenous. Can you kind of unpack that a bit? Because I sometimes get into trouble trying to explain what I mean by that, and I would love to hear uh, someone else kind of share that because, you know, you get into these Conflicts around, well, no, you're the colonizers, you're not the indigenous. And you know, particularly in a place like Australia, it can be quite a fraught concept.
1: Well, one place to maybe start is going back to the cognitive linguistics piece, which is colonization happens to our minds. And so we can think of it this way that the the life form that colonized humans to make us colonizers was mimetic. It was information patterns. And a lot of them are connected to the the Neolithic revolution, the emergence of agriculture, the need to have slave labor connected with agriculture, imperial models of conquest and domination uh, for empires and civilizations. And you sort of just come forward in time and it becomes pretty complex. But what's interesting is you can have a person within one of those empires or civilizations who doesn't have that mindset because they're still connected to their ancestry and so you know we could think of uh, like some of the gypsy cultures of southern Europe or Eastern Europe or look at some of the um, like here in in Colombia there are a lot of ways that people practice indigenous rituals with tobacco with the coca leaf or other such things and they've held on to part of the indigenous culture even though it's blended and what we can see is when they, are able to connect to landscapes in a sacred and meaningful way with an ancestral history, they're behaving as though they're indigenous. And when they feel like they're an owner of land separate from it, dominating and extracting from it, they're behaving like a colonizer. It doesn't matter their blood ancestry to the place, it's the cultural orientation of those relationships. Mm-hmm. And my favorite diagnostic for this is an Algonquin term from the Algonquin people of the New England area of, of North America. And they have a term that they call Wetiko. There are other tribes, like the Cherokee, that call it Windigo, And there are a couple of different names, but they're really talking about the same thing. And it comes from the basic human psychology, the ability to imagine something that's separate that's not separate. Like imagining your body separate from your mind or that men are separate from women, or that humans are separate from nature. You will pick your version. And wetiko is the illusion of separation that enables the mindless consumption and destruction of life. Pathology, it's a disease. But also in their spiritual tradition, it's a monster. It's like a zombie. And particularly because they're up, you know, uh, the northern part of North America, it's a, a mindless zombie. Uh, uh that engages in cannibalism that comes out of the winter uh the dark winter from the north and it's an emaciated human form that has its heart encased in ice so it's no longer has empathy or compassion and it mindlessly consumes and destroys all life and when they see a human person who represents this as an embodiment of it like Christopher Columbus is an example they called him a big wetico because mm-hmm. he was the embodiment of wetico I find this a very helpful diagnostic because you can be within a colonizer culture and not be wet to go. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing that, when you're not being wet to go, you're being indigenous, or at least you're in the, you're moving toward or you're, you're seeking to be indigenous. You may not remember your ancestry. You may not know the land you're from mm-hmm. and so on, a whole bunch of things. But the reason this is really important now to disconnect being indigenous from ancestral indigenous. Mm -hmm. is because we're an unprecedented moment in time. And what we need is indigenous people of the future. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And Mm -hmm. because human cultures are adapted to their environments, and right now environments are changing so quickly, we can't simply trust that ancestral cultures are adapted to these changing environments. Mm -hmm. So we need to actively create cultures that are trying to be indigenous in this changing context. And it may not be like, the indigenous are the past so we might use western science for part of it just as an example but to use it in an indigenous way i think and that's obviously really there's inter- a lot to learn from the indigenous but you know it's it's very muddy and very messy yeah thank messy.
0: you so much for explaining it in that way and i i think um it also encourages too the shift from this idea that culture is is a fixed thing you know it's it's constantly shifting and it's always sort of pigeonhole different ways of being it's like when you started out saying what we see is now is what we see is as normal it is the way of life but it is just such a short period of time in all of human history and and traditional cultures in all different places have shifted and changed over time so I wanted to to maybe then jump to where you were where you were heading to and saying actually we need to be re, we need to imagine a different way forward we need to design new pathways forward you, so you describe yourself as a as a cultural designer. So there's sort of two parts of this question, like what you I mean you've talked a, a bit about it, but there's some way that you could describe what that world is that you're imagining, and and it's not one world either. It's it's multiple worlds I would imagine too. But also linking in there to where are some of those blocks? So you were talking before about you know when you saw you know the Iraq War was just starting and people were walking around with blinkers on and we we still see that now today with with everything that that happens you know all the the multiple crises that we've been facing over these last you know year or so even just things seem to be going on like normal now we've kind of acclimatized to those sort of bits of news and you know people are back out onto the onto the streets and just continuing on as though nothing's really changed and we're back into we sort of snapped back to normal so, so there's this big shift that needs to happen in our way of thinking and in our, in our way of being. So what is a cultural designer how, and how can we all become more like cultural designers in our own places?
1: Well, I really like the way that David Stone Wilson describes this. and He's an evolutionary biologist in New York. And he, uh, he says we need to become wise managers of our own evolutionary process. And he's very car- careful with every word. To be in an evolutionary process, theory he's really speaking about Darwinian evolution, which is that there is a dynamic fitness that is related to the kind of environment an organism is in and what it means to thrive in that environment. And because every population has a variety of different expressions of, physical traits and behavioral traits, some of them are better suited than others to a particular moment in an environment. And there tends to be a statistical pattern that over time, the things that are more fit tend to propagate, things that are less fit tend to die off. And so that's like the shorthand of the evolutionary process. So we're in this evolutionary process, which is that with lots more details. And if we're going to be managers of the evolutionary process, first thing is we need to understand that that's what we're in. We are in an evolutionary process. Because then we know that evolutionary processes are complex adaptive systems. So we don't manage them as though they're other kinds of systems. We have to manage them as complex adaptive systems, which means we don't have control. It's improvisational. It's creative. Um, if When there is control, it's limited. When there is foresight, it's limited. When there is insight, it's limited. And so what we need to do is develop understandings of system logic, system behavior, dynamic system attractors, phase transitions, instabilities, and other such things. And then we need to know how to work with them. And that's how we can manage an evolutionary process. For example, as a good facilitator can hold a conversation and work with what comes up, but they can't predict what's going to come up. And so that's an example of managing an evolutionary process is to facilitate a dialogue. Now, to be a wise manager means we need to understand how our personal values and our ideology and our worldview relate to the future of the evolutionary process. And wisdom, in its deep kind of practical sense, is anything that relates to well-being and flourishing of living systems. You know, And you can define that in lots of particular ways. But if we're thinking about, The entire biosphere of of the Earth is a three and a half billion year living process that we're a part of, then the highest form of wisdom is to serve the future evolution of the biosphere of the Earth at the planetary scale. And so this is how we can get into design. We're designing for the living system of the entire planet, which then has nested scales that comes down to local. And we do this by understanding how to manage complexity and how to be part of a complex system. And we need to understand what the evolutionary processes are. And what this relates to is that this there's only one way that ends up falling out of this. And thank, thank goodness that uh, Dana Meadows named this in 1983, so I don't have to be the, the white guy in the future who's doing it. She was a pretty smart lady, and she gathered with a lot of really smart people. And what they found was in this very mistitled paper called A Brief History of the Balaton Group. And the Balaton Group was the think tank that formed out of the Longs Growth Study. Was well, They said, after 10 years of meeting at lots of universities and talking about this with really smart people, we need to create local living economies organized around their territories, and each one needs to have its own bioregional learning center. Mm-hmm. Turns out that's the way. <laughs> They, they were right did a good analysis. And so the way we design this thing is, we, you said, we look at ancestral human settlements, human ecological patterns, the biogeography of place. And then we design for the, uh, the autopoiesis, the dynamic living pattern of, of living systems at that scale. And what we find is that does not work unless we network up to larger scales. Because let's say that you do this really well in your bioregion, and then the next bioregion over, they're fundamentalist uh, militants with a dictator, and they come and kill you and steal all of your stuff. So it turns out that doesn't work. The only way that works is to network this across entire continents and the entire planet. And this is the solution. It's actually quite simple to state. Doing it is a different story. and so the design of this becomes partly to know the, the scale of analysis, which is the scale of these bioregional territories, and then the networks of them that we create collaboration across. And what's beautiful about this scale is that it is a relatively autonomous organizing scale. It's like a superorganism. Uh, not exactly. It doesn't quite meet all the criteria. But but it's... So you could look at an ant column and see how it's homeostasis work, Then it'd be close. It'd be a a good first approximation to think with. And so you start to see things like, well, how do you manage a watershed? Um, what is the carrying capacity of your bioregion? Which Peter was asking this question back in the seventies mm. and no one had good answers back then. I think we have much better answers now because we have satellite data of net primary production and embodied carbon and Amount of available rainfall and how it's connected to larger weather. Like we actually know a lot about the carrying capacity. Unfortunately, we overshot the carrying capacity decades ago. So is the low number than current population levels. And this is a, this is a predicament, not a problem. What it means is we have to design for these regenerative economies as that collapse process runs its course. Mm-hmm. I think this is a really critical thing because a lot of people are afraid of collapse, but they don't realize that collapse and breakdown is part of emergence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's actually essential. Essential. We understand how it works to design as part of the process.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, in essence, decomposition, composting, and so on. <laughs> so, collapse is something that you talk
0: a, talk a lot about, and it's and it, and what you just said is is acknowledging that that's actually part. And a necessary part of the process. So that, how, would you, how would you describe what it is that we need to do to people who, who kind of want to take this step forward but still feel apprehensive because, the, you know, it's comfortable where they are, they know what's happening, they know they need to step over there but just quite, don't quite have the confidence possibly to make that transition? How would you speak to someone like that to encourage them to take a
1: step across? I think there are two big pieces that are really important to this. One is that most of us don't have social support that make it clear what the step should be. So we just don't know what we should do. Mm. And I think that's very common. So to help build these like social bridges of support, your groups and friends who can show us better ways and help us take simple steps without taking big steps is going to be very important. So that's where like ecosystem restoration camps, visiting a permaculture project, uh, participating in a community garden or things like this. That can be small steps. But in order to do that, there's the other piece, which is we have to let ourselves feel our grief. Mm-hmm. Feel it. We have to stop being numb to it. Yeah, And this is important for for a very practical reason. You know, like earlier I I named or I described permaculture as a way of observing and engaging with uh, context and then acting with care toward it. Mm -hmm. It's hard to act with care when you love something and you watch it being destroyed because it hurts you. Mm -hmm. It hurts you to feel it. It hurts to stay connected. But it turns out that the way we regenerate landscapes is by feeling the life in the landscapes, Mm -hmm. which means in most cases we feel the death in the landscapes Mm -hmm. because we begin by feeling what is being destroyed that we love. And so the beginning of the process of change is to embrace the grief Mm -hmm. so that we can become sensitive enough to feel the patterns of life that are still present and work with them. Mm -hmm. Most of us are so overstimulated Mm -hmm. and distracted and numb and in pain that we're not able to feel this love Mm. so embracing grief is sort of paradoxically the first step Mm. we regenerate our ability to feel and to love so that we can attune ourselves to the living systems that we work with Mm. i think that's just such a big piece of this isn't it that
0: it's with all of the knowledge that we have, the scientific knowledge, and all of this system, it comes back down to that that deep connection and and with a heart connection and, and and feeling the love. Because, like you say, until you love something that deeply and feel so drawn to to caring about it, you're not going to be motivated to shift. I mean, I think this is this when you feel broken up about it when. You know I, you know that i I don't know if I'd cried so much when you know all the the climate rallies were happening and and all of that information was that just being poured out, and I spent my days researching more and more you know I'd, i I've been doing this work for decades, but I'd just decided to just throw myself deeply into exploring collapse, whereas I've been focusing so much on you know, creating permaculture systems and community gardens and ecovillages. I'm on that positive side, but I hadn't, I kind of almost desensitised myself to this collapse that's happening around because it's too painful that I dived into it. I, I don't think I'd cried so much for so long. and it And that opening up again to it completely, I think, shifted how I decided to enter into this space as well. And so you're right. I, it is. It's definitely about this. You know, it's not just what we know and how we can speak and communicate it. It's how, how we are really humanly connected and then relate. It's the relationship, isn't it? It's the qualities of the relationships that we have with our place and with one another and our, our, our ability to step out into being fully present in that.
1: Yeah. And I think this gets really nicely to the question of are humans good or bad, because one thing humans can do that is different from other animals. Uh, and sometimes um, there's the name homo ludens instead of homo sapiens. Say that and again. Homo ludens. ludens, L-U-D-E-N-S. And there's actually a book called Homo ludens um, by an anthropologist. And it translates roughly as the hominid that plays. and. Think of it like theater, to enact a play. We enact plays. We play out imagined scenarios. What this gives us, and think of like the role of the shaman in an indigenous culture, is it gives us the ability to take on perspectives. Like, I can take ayahuasca and become a plant, and then connect with the spirit energy of the jaguar, and I can learn the jaguar, and I can even go and kill someone in a neighboring village as the jaguar which happens sometimes in the Amazon. Uh, So this deep ability to take perspective is also very important for how to cultivate a sacred relationship of care. And so what's really beautiful about this is as we start to be the earth, knowing the earth, caring for the earth, we have, we take our godlike powers and act as though we're worthy of being gods, which is that we become humbled by the greatness of creation that we're a part of, and we learn to serve it. But without just like, submissive to it, we serve it in the spirit of gratitude. And this is something that is, um, I think, really a beautiful story, for instance, coming to Colombia, It's probably the best known um, indigenous group in Colombia at the moment. Is the Kogi people? The Kogi people live in Santa Marta. They sent a message. They called the message to Little Brother back in the 1990s, um, speaking to all of us. <laughs> and, uh, and so they're 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 one of the better known within um, within Colombia. And one of the things I learned about after coming here is that if there is violence or conflict in a village near a Kogi village, so the Kogis are fine. They're just living their lives peacefully. And they find out about a conflict in a nearby village. They begin a ritual. Everyone in their village begins a ritual of purifying their minds Mm -hmm. so that they don't have things that might be coveted or desired by someone else. They don't have insecurity in themselves. They come back to a peaceful place in themselves where they don't feel like they need anything. And they do this to ward off the temptation of the outside world to come and attack them. Mm -hmm. And their practice and to do this is to practice gratitude. Hmm. And it's really unfortunate that the, the Spanish word that's used for this is pagamento, which translates into English as payment, like they're hmm. making payments. Because really it's better to call them gift offerings. Hmm. And they're gift offerings of gratitude. What they do is go back and, and connect with the Mother Earth and they offer gifts of gratitude. And in doing this, they feel wholesome and complete, and without without need, they feel like their needs are taken care of, and this creates a mindset and a real lived expression of peace. Mm. Mm. And they do it by expressing gratitude to what gives them life.
0: Mm. That's beautiful, and you know this entering into this into this way of of being in gratitude but in in a in a gift economy as well like i'm just thinking about shifting from from where we are now into being in a community in a bioregional context where much of our interactions can be from that place of of gifting what we have and our skills is is a part of this and I, I mean, I would I'd like to kind of circle back around to where we were with um, the youth before, because one of the pro- programs that I'm working with a lot is the the Perma Youth, and uh, this is a youth-led group who are kind of connecting other young people who are exploring this. They're they're exploring um, the systems view of life with Fritjof Kappa and he comes in and he mentors them. He's we're working with Nora Bates and 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 warm data concepts, and and so they're all becoming sort of warm data hosts, and and I'm working with them with with permaculture. Um, but we have uh, groups um, that are sort of forming up around the world, from refugee settlements to this uh, new Pem- Youth Americas forming, and. I I would love if you would come and speak with the Perma Youth. They have these monthly festivals, and it. it, But beyond that, Perma Youth group itself. If you were to speak to a to a a hall full of
1: teenagers, what would you say to them? Mm. I think I'd say to them Mm. that. I would just say something true so they'd know that I'm not full of shit. I'd start by saying um, the adults are being children and there there really aren't an adult. The world of adults is not full of adults. And uh, we need a world with adults and with elders. And if we're going to have a world with adults and with elders, then we need the youth to be adults. And one way that this would be expressed that they could do is to learn how to be humans that are worthy of continuing to exist as part of the earth. And I would just say, uh, you know, if you are unable to love yourself enough to give yourself to the source of all life that we know in the universe, because we only know of life on this planet at this point in time. If, if we don't love ourselves enough to let ourselves have that, then we don't deserve it. So how can we be worthy of it? How can we deserve it? How, how do we become responsible enough to serve it and to receive it? And I've been really holding a meditation for a couple of years now on what it means to give a gift, and to receive a gift. And what I've learned, or one thing I've learned, is that a gift cannot be given unless it is invited. And a gift cannot be received unless there is gratitude. And I'm the only one to have this insight. It's just that I realize this in very practical terms. So I will use a practical example started the study group Earth Regenerators because I was writing a book. I've avoided writing a book for a long time. And finally, one day in mid-December of 2019, I'm like, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and two weeks later, 16 days later, I've written like 14 of the chapters. Oh my gosh. It's just like a chapter a day. It's like, I've been putting off writing this so long. So I wrote the first half of the book in two weeks. Like, what about this book? I don't want to wait a year to publish it. I don't even have a publisher. I don't want to feel like I should make money off of it and be known for it because that's not what I'm writing about is regenerating the earth. And I'm taking everyone else's knowledge that's been given to me and just repackaging it. I'm bringing it to a new story. And while there might be a couple ideas in there that are mine, it's hard to tell which ones they are. And almost all of it's not mine. It's someone else's. So I'm just filled with so much gratitude to receive all this knowledge. And so it just felt right to. Create a study group. Who would like to have a study group to read the manuscript for my book? And as of right now, there are 2,600 members of the study group, and we've done quite a lot. We uh, actually started a, a bioregional investment platform, raised enough money to buy some land, to start a nature reserve, and all kinds of other interesting things that are happening. And it all comes out of giving and receiving gifts. So what I would do is I would give away the book chapters, give away my my facilitation of learning, and all I would say was at the bottom of a of like a article that had my two book chapters in it and discussion questions. Now I would just say this is freely given in the spirit of a gift economy. If you'd like to support me, here's my Patreon and here's my PayPal. Um, but you're under no obligation. I give this in service to the earth. Now I can say that as a marketing gimmick, but what I found was people invited me to give it simply because they were seeking to find it. Mm -hmm. And I was grateful to give it. I was actually, a lot of people felt gratitude to me, but from my perspective, I felt deep gratitude that I had something to give. That in the midst of this terrible time with all the knowledge I have about it, I had something to give, which valid and, and affirms my existence and helps me to feel loved and so it's painful to be a sensitive person dealing with all of these things that, that are in the world. And so I found that there was this reciprocity that arose. And then um, flash forward about eight months when we started a community regenerators training program. We invited anyone in the network who wanted to facilitate the development of the platform to have a free training in the spirit of the gift economy with the idea that they would receive the training and join a cohort in exchange for being of service to earth regeneration to anyone who's regenerating the earth. And the first day of our gathering, our first community zoom call, I presented a sacred contract for earth regeneration. And a small number of people were really uncomfortable with the idea of a contract. And uh, and we sort of had a conversation that ended without us basically affirming the agreement that was the invitation for them to join. They were unable to receive the gift I was offering as a group. And I reflected on this for a few days. And I was co-facilitating with a guy, Diego Galli, from Italy, a lot about what was going on. And what I realized was you can't have a gift economy without a functioning commons. Mm. And you need to create the commons first. So what we did was we started the pro-social training process, which has as one of its pillars, Eleanor Ostrom's work on the commons and how to build a commons. So what we did was we facilitated for two months the formation of a community and social bonds, a shared sense of identity and purpose Mm -hmm. using a, a set of different techniques. And then we had a commons. And only then could everyone engage in a gift economy? Mm -hmm. They could freely participate in the creation of a work group of their own making with other people who shared their interests. And they would freely give it joyfully and with gratitude back to the Earth Regenerators community because they were supported by the cohort, which was a commons. Mm -hmm. So to see that people could not actually receive the gift without the ability to receive the gift Mm -hmm. and Someone cannot give the gift without the ability to have it received. And the gratitude is felt on both sides only if there's a functioning commons was visible in that process, but was not visible to me before that process.
2: Mm. It's
0: really interesting. Yeah. A lot of the work that when I first dived into permaculture work was creating um, a community garden. And at the time it was really about applying... What we'd learnt and creating a garden and thinking about you know teaching sustainability, but as it as it went on, it became so much about exactly what you're just saying about it's this it's this place where we we had a shared sense of belonging connection and and that things just started to emerge because people came in there they they felt they felt deeply connected to that place to they were dreaming into this process that was emerging it was new no one had ever done this before in this city it was this kind of novel playful creative space where we were imagining what where we wanted to be and how we wanted to do it and and when you know we're all in in service to this place no one was paid we had no grants but yet this unfolding happened and um and a healing happened you know some of the best stories that i share about this i mean this started over 25 years ago Some of the best stories I have are around the healing that took place to, you know, to various um, individuals but also what was happening on the land and how people's lives completely shifted from that into different ways of being, different ways of working, different ways of living in community and thinking about land and housing. And it, it we couldn't have kind of planned and managed that process without first creating that commons and then that also rippled out people were looking at that and saying oh we would love to have one of these in our neighborhood or can you and and when we would travel we would be attracted to places that were you know having those so we, that network of these commons became what we created like the Australian city farms and community gardens network which wasn't an organization it was really simply just this thread of connections but it again, you know, this pointing to that as being one of those seeds of regeneration, I think is a really important thing to do because often we overlook that part of it and we get focused on the actions or the doing rather than the the kind of the 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 space, the the threads of connection that hold us together and that sense of oh yeah, the the recommoning. I live in an eco-village. I've been here for about 20 years too, and this sense that I don't own this land and there's no fences and that that we share this land with all the other species that are here and that we're we're part of this regeneration of this piece of land here. So this the commons, I think, is a really important seed of regeneration. What are the other kind of because I know we need to wrap up this conversation really soon and and, I um I'm I'm wondering if we could kind of just bring it back into thinking. Well, what are those seeds of the regenerative culture? The the pathways that we can that we can kind of identify as being maybe the points that we could see we could focus more energy on or give more love to.
1: Yeah, I I was thinking of um, just reading a brief quote of something I wrote, but I just was just thinking it fits so appropriately here I, I i wrote this as like a facebook post i think a couple of weeks ago and then i uh, realized it was sort of profound I, I said i'll let you in on a little secret the way we we the way we regenerate the planet and safeguard humanity's future is to cultivate the conditions for trust and cooperation we do this at the scale of small functioning groups then we weave them together and this is something that we're very practically doing. So, we now have about 30 self organized work groups on body and the earth regenerators, and we're creating more all the time. And we're using the framework called ProSocial to do it that I was mentioning earlier. And what's great about ProSocial, just to promote it for a moment, is ProSocial has three like foundational bodies of knowledge and practice connected to it Eleanor Ostrom's work on managing the commons is one of the pillars. The work of evolutionary studies for how to create conditions of trust and cooperation, the evolution of trust and cooperation. And the third is um, from contextual behavioral science and a set of techniques called acceptance and commitment therapy, which sort of like the best blend. It's, It's like what came after cognitive behavioral therapy as the next better thing. And it's one of the best Uh, established in the practices and therapy right now. And what acceptance and commitment therapy does, which is the piece that we haven't really talked about so far today, is it helps us build up two psychological capacities. And thinking of design pathways, these two capacities are foundational. They are the regulation of emotions and psychological flexibility. And it turns out when you scan the public health research on human development and public health outcomes. Your success depends entirely on the existence or the absence of these two things. Emotion regulation is like, I get angry, but I manage how I respond instead of just responding impulsively. And you can see all the ways that's fundamental to cooperation and trust. And the other about um, psychological flexibility is about not being too judgmental, not being too rigid or dogmatic, being open-minded and creative, engaging in lateral thinking, taking on different perspectives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Like so. So there's this innovative, adaptive capacity, combined with the ability to manage our own emotions. And acceptance and commitment therapy starts with acceptance. We can accept with a mindfulness practice. We can accept when we're not doing what we feel like we should be doing. We can commit to doing more of what we feel we should be doing. And then we train in that. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of techniques for doing this. But this is sort of like the secret design pathway for regenerating the earth. Because the secret is we cultivate these capacities in ourselves by practicing them in groups. Mm -hmm. And as we do this in groups, the groups begin to regenerate the people And they begin to regenerate their places. And then those people, whether they've learned it or not, start doing ecosystem regeneration and other things because they observe it as being needed. And so this is, it's so, like, surprisingly simple. It is. (laughs) And um, and 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 I also think
0: it's really interesting, too, then when you throw in the idea that you're raising children in that way how their perceptions are quite different because, you know, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne, a city, and, you know, very much, um, you know, even though it was a kind of an ethical frame, there was still that consumer culture. And I've had to learn and relearn and unlearn and, and, you know, kind of adapt over, you know, I'm now 51, and so it's a lifelong journey and it's going to continue to be a lifelong journey of exploration and, and deepening and connection. But my kids have grown up in this eco-village here. Grown up in the commons, grown up in a gift economy, grown up with systems perspectives and permaculture ethics. And, you know, I started to talk with them about some things. I said, they're like, this is kind of leading edge ideas. And they're going, what's leading edge about? It? They don't, it just is. And uh, I think, you know, this creating the conditions for change in the way that we perceive ourselves and our relationships is, is as you're saying, I think the key, absolutely the key. And yeah. you know, we can raise raise young people in this way or introduce them into this so it's not like they're going, you know, it's cycling right back to that point of drop out of school because if they don't have to go through the school and the university and then eventually afterwards find out how they're going to um you know, make sense of all of this. The sense making takes place right from that very beginning.
1: Yeah. This might be a good time to share a, a very important research finding from the field of cultural evolution that's not widely known. As you know, throughout the, the history of human studies, there have been different assumptions about humans being exceptional. Like humans are the only ones with intelligence. Oh, wait, dogs are intelligent. Humans are the only ones with language. Oh, wait, whales have whale songs, and it's a language. And, you know, so we have these various things. And as you chip away at anthropocentrism, and you say, well, what is left? And they've now come to a pretty robust finding that is unlikely to be disproven. It still might, but it's it seems really robust. And it is humans have the ability for cumulative cultural evolution which is we can create cultural knowledge and then build on it. And there's no other animal or plant that we have evidence of that does this. And one thing that this relates to that's, that's connected to what we were just talking about is another concept from biology called niche construction. The classic example is the beaver that changes the shape of the river by building a dam. It builds, it constructs its niche. So the cultural corollary of that is called social niche construction. And it turns out that humans don't just inherit genetics, but also we also inherit culture. Like, I'm born into an English-speaking culture. I learn English, so I inherit culture. But we also inherit social niches. Mm-hmm. So if you were born in New York City, you don't have to rebuild the subway system. You inherit a built environment with the subway mm-hmm. system. So what's interesting about this is if we design social niches, then the social niches can be inherited and they accumulate. Now, what's interesting about accumulation is accumulation is an iterative process, which means sometimes it's exponential. Mm. So cumulative cultural evolution is why human culture can change faster than human biology. Estimates are it's about 10,000 10, times faster. So you can change human culture through cumulative cultural evolution. And the way you do this is by designing and transmitting social niches. So now why would kids drop out of college or not go? Cuz it's the wrong social niche for the future. Mm-hmm. They're going to learn all the things they need to survive and do well in a university environment, and they're the wrong incentives, the wrong directions, the wrong objectives. And then they're going to come out later and be just as lost and still have to find the social niches they could have found 4 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Except during those four years, there's exponential planetary change and they've lost four years of time to deal with crucial issues that are urgent and that are at their doorstep and they don't have that time to waste. And that's why I tell students to drop out of college. Mm.
0: And I think, you know, the, I think the role too that, that many of us have been working in this for a while is to, to, be, to be present and to be available. If, if young people are choosing a different pathway, and not mm-hmm. going to college, what you know, they still want to learn. So where is it that they can find those ideas that they're wanting to learn about? Or how do they find the ideas they don't even know that they want to learn about, but in conversation with people like yourself, that they can actually start to, to grow. So how can we support younger people more to feel confident and and possibly even? So this should be my last question, I know. <laughs> possibly even the the parents. You know, because that's often, you know, we, we get pushed into a particular pathway of, you know, well, this is what you need to do. And you have to almost, as a young person, to sort of, uh, sort of peel off that layer first of that, all those expectations and the drive and uh, from that's coming behind you to push you in a certain direction to say, actually, you know, it's this direction. And then to have us have that, those conditions that is can receive them.
1: How can we support that? I think one of the things that young people really need is they need to know that there is a way to do this and there are places to practice. And then they need to lower the barrier to entry to get to those places. So my sort of simple conceptual model for this, which isn't quite accurate, but it's a good start, is to combine something like a permaculture camp or an ecosystem restoration camp with something like the folk high schools of Scandinavia Together with woofing mm-hmm. so if you think of woofing, but you don't just volunteer on a project, you actually get trained and um I wrote a um, a paper like a just a collect- it was like a collection of thoughts about two years ago, where I identified forty two thematic elements of bioregional education, just mm-hmm. from reading a bunch of stuff, and I just summarized them, and one of them was what I called the passport system, and I had to explain what I meant by that. So instead of getting a college degree, which is like a passport into professionalism, you are um, you get something like badges. Like mm-hmm. think of uh, in social media, you can get badges. You get a badge for learning, you know, cop buildings and urban construction. You get a badge for learning group facilitation. You get a badge for learning microorganisms, whatever it is. You know, there are lots of things you get badges for. But if that's connected to woofing and connected to real world, long standing regeneration projects, that are structured around regenerative economics so that people who come don't have to pay to be there, the barriers to entry are lowered, and they can have a livelihood that is meaningful and enriching for them to do it, then they would do it. Mm -hmm. The one thing the parents can do is encourage their kids to explore these things. Another thing the parents can do is make it financially viable for their kids to do it by helping them to do it oh, you want to go to Rancho Mastatal in Costa Rica, a freaking awesome permaculture camp. Or their parents might say, well, I'll pay for your airline ticket. Mm-hmm. You know, just whatever it is, those things that make it easier or more possible to do. And in each context, it's going to be a little different. But I think the gesture of the parents saying, I'm investing in you being part of the future that I know you need to be, mm-hmm. as the young people are inquiring into it, is huge. Mm-hmm. It's just so big. Mm. Um, and to validate them and say, yeah, you shouldn't seek the world I was a part of. I grew up in the wrong world and I'm trying to find my way out too. Or some of us as parents, we found a way out, but so many parents still haven't. Mm. So mm. I think this is really key because we have to break the intergenerational pattern. And one way to do that is to provide social supports. Mm-hmm. And social supports are a kind of niche construction, so they're doing exactly what I was saying earlier. It can have calming effects, and mm-hmm. so um, and so it can change things very quickly. That's what we need. Isn't it?
0: that, it's that it's yeah. the rapid transition that we need, and that what I'm hearing you say is that the rapid transition can take can can happen by fully embracing being. Really local and bi regional. It's it's this, and the the multiplicity of those everywhere, and the connection of those everywhere. So, this, because a lot of the big picture, sort of big ideas about, well, this is going to solve the world's problems, it's actually not this one big silver bullet kind of idea or a few. It's actually everyone everywhere making a shift into this other way of perceiving and,
1: and being. If I have like, I kind
0: of paraphrased that kind of right to
1: what you say? Yeah, and I'll give a little example that's probably going to be very familiar to you for from all of the work you've done, because you have more experience with it than I do. But it's something that just happened yesterday, so it's on my mind. Is we have a, this community reforestation project that's owned by an association with 40 members and it's been going for 12 years, and they're trying to reforest the native tropical dry forest of this region. And we're in an area where there's this African grass. It was brought in for agriculture or for pasture. It's very aggressive. It kills all of the, the ground cover, all the bushes. They cannot compete with it. So you can grow trees, but all of the understory, the call in Spanish, the Soto Bosque, all of that dies off and it's just grass. So we were in this part of the Bioparque, this this community project, and we're pulling grass. And we're pulling grass in a place where there are some of the little native bushes and shrubs but they will quickly be choked out by the grass. And we're at a time of year where the dry season's about to end, the rainy season's about to start. And right next to it are a lot of these shrubs and bushes sending all their seeds with wind dispersal flying over this area. So if we just pull the grass, chances are good that these bushes are gonna outcompete the grass. Because that's actually what happened in the area that the seeds are coming from. So, so here's the example. You go to this place and you spend an hour pulling grass. Well, what does it mean? It means you're serving ecological succession to protect and encourage a type of ecosystem that is on the verge of extinction. So you're not just pulling grass. You have a story and nested levels of a story. That simple act of pulling the grass is connected to. Mm -hmm. And so what people need is very simple, very local actions that are nested in stories that actually make sense. Mm -hmm. And this is a story that if someone understands, we're in this tropical dry forest, 78% endemic species. It's freaking incredible Mm -hmm. how much only exists here. And it's 98% deforested. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming a desert. So like, this is a nearly extinct type of ecosystem. And to pull that African grass and help those native bushes to grow is deeply meaningful when we understand the context. Mm -hmm. But all we're doing is pulling grass. You know, like it's so simple, and I think this is what people need: is very simple acts embedded in really holistic stories.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, perfect. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Joe. It's just been an absolute pleasure to have the chance to finally talk. Like we said at the start, it's you know we've kind of been floating around similar worlds for a long time and I uh, and it's just just wonderful to, oh there you are. It's not yeah, dark it where like you
1: were. <laughs> we're very close to the equator here. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah
0: just kind of the lights just go off don't they? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> well yeah thank you so much for joining me. It's it's been absolutely wonderful and, and I, and I so where can people find out more about what you do? So if I could put some links below, what, where could they find your book, for example, to read? Or where can they find out more about work that you do? Yeah,
1: the, the best place would be um, the Earth Regenerators Network, which is on a mobile app called Mighty Networks. Oh, great. It's used okay. for online courses. And I'll drop into the chat right now a link to the preface of my book, which is also on Earth Regenerators, so you get them both. Because the whole book is available for free online. Um, And what I would suggest is join Earth Regenerators. And we're structuring a set of social supports for people to make, like our our design focus of Earth Regenerators is to provide scaffolding for life transitions so people can move away from extractive lifestyle to a regenerative lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And they do this through social support. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to create the context in which all the so- social supports become present. As an example, um, to borrow the beautiful Aboriginal concept of yarning, we have a member of our community who changed the name because they didn't want to appropriate it. He calls them campfire talks. Mm-hmm. But it's more or less the same thing. It's creating these woven tapestries of people through unstructured conversations, hosted regularly. Now this becomes a form of social support. For finding ways to make life choices, make life transitions. Mm-hmm. So we're setting up really, I'd say we're setting up is wrong. Emerging dynamically through all of these pro-social groups are these kinds of capacities. And so someone who wants to find out about my work really should try to find out about these community supports mm-hmm. more than my work. Mm-hmm. Cause that's where they're going to find their localized social scaffolding to help them make life choices mm-hmm. and to act them out. Mm-hmm. Just gonna be really important because in the next 10 years, we need a lot more people doing regenerative work. Mm-hmm. Wow. Tens to hundreds of millions of more people. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Joe.
0: It's been just an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. And um, I look forward
1: to hopefully many more conversations with you over time. Yes, please. And thank you so much for reaching out. I've been at the end of your work for a while now. So it's lovely to get to connect. Yeah.
0: Well, take care and have a good evening where you are. Okay. And thank, thank you, very you for much. everything that you do. It's it's really, really uh, so it I mean, it's really inspiring. And I I'm I'd love to connect all the, the youth programs that I work with with what you're doing and to sort of explore that with them too and you know, maybe create a, a sort of a, a campfire kind of concept with them too. That sounds like a perfect Place to
1: start. I think that would be lovely. And it would also be lovely to find ways to invite them to come here to Bodhichara in Colombia and mm-hmm. work with us on projects, those who are interested. Yeah. To just yeah. start to build relationships. so yeah. I would love to. Excellent. All right. Take all care. Right. Lovely, Take care.
2: To meet thank you. Thank you. Okay. Lovely to meet
1: you too. Bye. Bye bye.
0: So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Head on over to my YouTube channel, the link's below, and then you'll be able to watch this conversation. But also make sure that you subscribe, because that way you'll be notified of all new films that come out. And also you'll get notified of all all the new interviews and conversations that come out. So thanks again for joining us. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time.